find a seat. We're going to go ahead and get started. It's good to see everyone. Welcome, welcome. So if you're, if you're new to Redemption Church, we have spent the last 15 weeks in the book of Numbers. So we're, we're um, out of the wilderness, I guess, today doing something different. Um, I want to start with this. One of my all-time favorite Mark Twain quotes says this. He says, he who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. And you get it, right? You get what he's saying. Like, imagine for a moment that I have carried a, ta- a cat by the tail. I have not. I'm really more of a dog person. Um, but just imagine I have, and I could tell you all about it, like in precise d- detail, what it felt like, what it sounded like. But for some reason, the sound of it, it seems like the funnest part to me. Um, but even if I was like a great storyteller, hearing about it would never be the same as if you did it yourself. And many things in life are like this. There's a lot of really important knowledge in life that only comes from doing things. And it sort of goes the other way, too. Everything we do shapes us. It changes us. Not just what we know, but changes who we actually are. Everything that we do in life shapes who we are becoming. And stewarding this reality is, I think, what lies behind Um, Paul's, the Apostle Paul's teaching from today, from Colossians, where he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'm guessing you don't remember the first time you ever dressed yourself when you got up in the morning. I don't even remember the first time my kids dressed themselves, although I'm sure I cried because I always cry at those kind of things. But I do have these rich memories of trying to teach them when they were little how to dress themselves. And I have, I have just vivid memories of them trying to squeeze their head through the armhole of a shirt, you know, which is always entertaining. Um, I'm not saying that I would move the sleeve over so that they would hit that on that, but maybe I did. Um, Lewis had this thing. I don't know if you remember this or not. Lewis would his pants were difficult, so he would just turn his shirt upside down and say, these are my pants, and he would put his, he would put his, he would put his feet inside the sleeves of the shirt. It was great. It was better than getting dressed. Nick did not do this. Nick was kind of a perfectionist. I have no idea where he got that, Um, but for him, it was like the turtlenecks, the shirts with buttons. He's just like, not wearing this. I will not wear this. Like, he wanted something easy, but getting dresses, it's one of those things that We take for granted now. I'm guessing everybody didn't have any trouble dressing themselves this morning. Um, And you didn't really, as you did it, have to struggle. You didn't have to remind yourself how to do it. But there was a time 
not that long ago, probably, when it wasn't automatic. You had to think about every little aspect of it. And the first time you got it right, it was probably a big deal. But then it became a habit. And, and now when you get dressed, you know, you can think about a million other things at the same time and not the procedure for how to be dressed. And so, so what is it? What happened between when you were like three or four years old and, and now in terms of getting dressed? And of course, the answer is somewhere along the way, getting dressed became a habit. And you formed that habit the same way you form any habits, all your habits. Somebody taught you, and then you practice. I mean, this is how we, it's how we learn to do almost everything. Someone who knows what they're doing shows us how, what to do, and then, then we practice it over and over until it becomes a habit. And what Paul is, is claiming is that we sort of undergo this same process with Christianity, in, in particular the Christian virtues that sort of make up the character of Christ. We, we can put on, we can learn how to wear things like compassion or kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and even love, he says, we can put it on. Now, I think this is an interesting metaphor that he uses for Christian discipleship, that we all sort of come into the world naked and someone has to dress us and then teach us to dress ourselves and then we had to practice it until it was automatic. And Paul is saying this is what Christian virtue is like. It's acquired in basically the same way. In Romans, in fact, he calls it putting on Christ, learning to wear it. And, and behind all of this is this assumption that nobody shows up in the world clothed in Christian virtue. You have to kind of carry that cat by the tail and then practice. It's kind of weird to think about. I think of virtues as something we can practice. I mean, we normally say things like, she's a really kind person, or he's a very humble man. And, and we speak about them like they're personal attributes, you know what I mean? So, so is that what they are? Or, or are they really more like practices? It's interesting if you look at the language, like the history of virtue, the, the Greek word for virtue is um, erite. And erite is mostly about function. Erite is like, um, it's when something does or accomplishes what it's intended to do or accomplish. So it's less of a personal attribute and more of an action or practice that helps a thing function as it was intended, or, or you could say to help it express its true nature, or what it was made to be. So for instance, like the, the virtue of the eye is the act of seeing, because that's what the eye is intended to do. And so these virtues that Paul has listed, these are actions or practices that actually reflect the way human beings are designed to function. That's what they are. So patience is a virtue, not because God thinks patience is nice. It's, it's because humans were, were created to live patiently. It's kind of an interesting twist on the way to see, see these things. Like, so this list of, of virtues isn't meant to be just a bunch of new moral obligations, you know what I mean? Or like a new set of laws we have to keep. They're describing what it looks like to come fully alive as a human being. Fully human, as human as intended to be. It involves a body and a body 
community that's built for compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, for bearing with each other, for forgiveness, love, peacefulness, and gratitude. And kind of as a group, these things are what they would have called in the ancient world, and they still call it this in philosophy today, they would call it the habitus. It's this Latin word that just means the comprehensive set of embodied dispositions that end up determining how we view the world and how we interact with it, how we almost perceive, how we apprehend the world. Our habitus, it, it involves both perception um, but um, and, and like how we conceive of like the files we use to file things and make sense of them. But it's, it's more than that because habitus is embodied in our actions, the ways that we move through the world and interact with people and things. So it's not just like our mindset or our worldview. That's a different thing. Um, the, the habitus is, is more than like an attitude because it's, it's embodied in our actions, in our dispositions. And they end up guiding the way we move through the world. So they're constantly determining, you know, what happens in our life, our relationships, our, even our, like our, our identity personally and, and corporately. And so, so this list, you could say over there to the side, this list is, is one of many in the scriptures, lists of the Christian habitus. And it's really less of an individual achievement and more like something that we're meant to embody as a community, which always makes me feel better if there's some of these I'm not so great at because I can always trust there's somebody who's pretty good at that and we're part of the same clan, you know. But when you think of it that way, it's also kind of tough because I'm not sure, if you look at this list, I'm not sure Christians are really known for this right now. Which is, that's tough. But it kind of makes sense when you think about how much Christianity has been reduced to a belief system instead of a way of being, even a set of practices. And habitus, it recognizes this idea that the way that our social and cultural groups and conditions um, really determine for us the way we respond to the world. And, and toward that end, like, what, what are our, where are our actions taking us? You know, toward what kind of world are they moving us? Our social groups will will determine a lot of this. So like, for instance, I see nobody here today um, is wearing a pair of pants with one long leg and one short leg. You know what I mean? It's like, you either have two short legs or two long legs. There's no rule, there's no law that says this is how you have to dress yourselves. It's just, we all know that would be weird. Um, and, and so it's, it's part of our habitus. These, these social norms, you know, they're, they're everywhere and they determine most aspects of our lives, the way we actually use our bodies. I mean, real concrete things like the way we spend our money, the way we navigate power and relationships and public space and our social spaces and whether or not we get concerned with the dating lives of Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, right? And whether it's a publicity stunt or clearly true love, right? It depends on our habitus. I've heard lots of arguments about this over the last week. 
But, and it just depends, how you feel about this depends on your group and how that group has trained you to act in, in the world. I mean, the, remember the show Seinfeld? The entire show is like turning the camera on the habitus that we're totally blind to and just going, you know we do this thing, right? Why do we do this thing? That's what it, what it is. And, and the truth is, it's socially constituted and we're not allowed to move very far outside the norm of culture. Our culture will punish us if we stray too far outside the normal habitus of the, of the group. But what Paul is saying is the Christian habitus it really is supposed to be distinct. It's supposed to be different. And um, the way that the rest of society is, has people moving through, through the world is, is not great. The Christian habitus is supposed to be trained on different ends. So you could say Christian bodies are not meant to be co-opted by any other political or cultural power or agenda. Think about that for a second. That's a really big statement. Christian bodies aren't meant to be co-opted by any other political or cultural body or group or power or agenda. Christian bodies are meant to embody God's intention for humanity and to become then fully human and then give their lives away for the rest of the world, for the life of the world. And sort of the implication is that this Christian habitus isn't automatic. Like they're going to have to work on this intentionally together, which is it's kind of a bigger deal than we might think because the typical habitus of the cultures and and powers of the world, it does not train people to use their bodies as they're intended to be used. You probably sense this. There, there are just certain things in our culture that um, when, when we take part in them, they're just so, so messed up that when we get involved with them, they're, it feels like dehumanizing just to participate. Like I think politics is, is this way. Like you, you get involved too much in politics today and you immediately sort of feel like you need a shower you know it's like dehumanizing just to participate same thing is true if you look at I always point to individualism consumerism and nationalism as kind of the the unholy trinity of American life and anytime we get too bound up in those things it starts to feel inhuman and inhumane and dehumanizing because the default mode of our world is, is that way. And really, the Christian tradition is meant to address this problem and to address it by embodying among the people a genuinely different alternative to um, the way of the world, a new community that's constituted by by. God's spiritual presence in a people, and then these practices, these very different, these odd practices. And much of what we do, like the, the cats that we carry or don't carry, much of this is determined by what group we think we're part of. You know what I mean? Who we draw our line to, who defines us. And in American society, some of this is good, but a lot of it is pretty bad. And so if we want to be more fully alive, more fully human as God intended, then we're going to need to engage what Paul's talking about here. So, uh, we need a way 
to engage in alternative practices that will shape us into the kinds of people um, whose identity is rooted in something that um, matches God's intention for humanity. We need a different cat to carry by the tail, a different set of habits, rhythms, and practices that'll help us become more human as human is meant to be. And if Christi- Christianity has a problem right now, I think it's, it's not with our beliefs. It's really our practices. That's why I often say this. I try to say it, you know, multiple times a year at Redemption. Christianity is not a belief system. It's a new way to be human that is constituted by a set of transformative and subversive practices that are patterned on the life and, and teaching and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And, and these practices help us carry the cat of Christianity by the tail so that we can, you know, become defined the way God wants us to be defined. And, and over and against kind of the, the narratives, the stories the culture tries to push on us. And, and the main practices are, are aimed really directly at subverting some of the ways culture tries to define us. So we have 10 that we talk about at Redemption a lot. They are baptism. So you think about baptism subverts um, anything else that demands our full allegiance. Communion um, subverts like who, whose name we live in, you know, what name we bear. Sabbath subverts a culture of busyness and productivity. Tithing subverts consumerism and, and kind of unbridled capitalism. Weekly worship is just the liturgical shaping of our imagination and for living. Our, our daily prayer cultivates reverence instead of irreverence. It subverts irreverence. It, it teaches us a new language, the language of faith. Um, community is a practice. Subverts individualism and self-sufficiency. Solitude subverts a culture of entertainment and loneliness. Peacemaking subverts a culture of war and violence and revenge. Being paired with the outcast subverts a culture of fame and popularity and just kind of scrapping our way to the top. All these practices kind of just offer a very different way of entering the world. Um, And there are many more than than these. These are just kind of the most basic ones. But if you carry these cats by the tail, you'll learn things about God, about life and the world and what it means to be human that, that are true. They're just true, but you can't learn them any other way. And so there's a sense in which Christianity is the participation in, in a story and in a community, but in large part, it's participating in a new set of practices that sort of constitute a whole new way of being in the world. And fidelity to this way over time is what Christians call faith. Or often around here we say faithing, faith as a, as a verb. When, when we carry the Christian cat by the tail for a long time, this, this faith gives birth to a new kind of humanity. Jesus actually called this being born again from above. We just become a whole new kind of human, living a life that is now defined by things like cruciformity, like the shape of the cross, 
kenosis, which is pouring out our lives for one another. And especially, Paul says, love that binds, binds all of this together. This is how we become fully alive and, and how we become more like Jesus. And so it sort of begs the question, how do we do this? Like, how does this happen? Because it clearly doesn't happen automatically, just like by being an American. And it's kind of tricky because we're all sort of propelled through life by these powerful conscious and unconscious desires that are always shoving us around, you know. One of the consistent claims of Christianity is this idea that humans are not just victims of our desires. We're not powerless. We have the ability to shape our desires intentionally in ways that render us more alive. And this has a lot to do, you know, with what we love, what we desire, um, but even more, it has to do, shaping it has to do with our habits and rhythms and practices and how, what they're doing to us, how they're shaping us. There's this one philosopher that I've talked about him a lot before. His name's um, Jamie Smith, and he has described it this way. He says, first, you are what you love. Think about that for a minute. So you become more and more like the things you are loving over and over with all your heart. Like for me, I always think of um, my wife and my boys. I mean, I I love them so much that they feel like the deepest part of who I am, like the part of me that's most truly me. And even though our identities are, are distinct, but we're so part of each other, even to the point where, like, they, they named me my favorite names for me. You know, dad, husband. And, and this is true, you know, for, for everyone, for everybody's identity. It's, it's defined by our loves in, in a very important sense. You are what you love. And then he says, you love what you desire, we end up chasing the things we desire. We're driven into the world by desire. If your um, desire is for a thing, you chase that thing, you think about that thing you, until eventually you love it. It's like the whole Lord of the Rings Gollum thing, not my precious, you know what I mean? Like just sitting around looking at it, pretty soon it's your, it's your love. If you desire something long enough, you end up loving that thing. You are what you love and you love what you desire. And then finally, he kind of closes the loop. He says, you desire what you liturgically practice. And this, this takes some unpacking. So um, liturgies are just like habits, rhythms, and practices. A lot of them are words we say, thoughts we think, which are also words, that end up shaping our imagination and our desires. So the easiest way to conceive of this, I think, is advertising. Like, Corporations don't spend a bajillion dollars advertising every year so it will not change our behaviors, right? They know these are like liturgies. Advertisements are like liturgies. You watch a Snicker commercial enough times and you all of a sudden want a Snickers. Like you've watched television and after about an hour or so, if you're watching football, you'll be like, I need Cheez-Its. Why do I need Cheez-Its? Because they advertise constantly, right? These liturgies are like this. They're actions or they're often words that um, we routinely perform or encounter, engage, 
that shape our desires. So you are what you love, and you love what you desire, and you end up desiring what you liturgically practice. Okay, so now jump back to Paul and this idea that we, we need to clothe ourselves with the character of Christ. So we begin the process of doing this with very simple liturgical practices. So change in this line of thinking um, begins with a practice. So a practice is like any activity that's new to you and performing it isn't automatic. So you need usually a role model who can teach you um, and then, then you have to do it as a practice. So for example, everybody here probably knows how to drive. Do you remember who taught you? You remember? Did, um, raise your hand if you remember which parking lot you were in when you first drove. You can still picture it. That's a lot of us. I mean, it's kind of wired to my brain. I still re remember where I was and who was with me. So driving is like this. Driving is one of those things you don't know how to do it immediately. So you have to learn. So the first thing you do, you find a driver who can teach you. And then you practice it over and over. And at first, you'll be terrible at it. Like, remember how bad you were in the beginning and how everything felt weird? Like, you're moving the wheel and you're like, oh, that's what it feels like or that's what it does. Or did anybody, like, mash the brakes instead of the accelerator or mix those up in some way? And you add a clutch to it and sh shifting gears and it was just, like, it was noisy and probably expensive um, <laughs> for me to learn how to drive. So you'll be, you'll be terrible at it. You'll be all in your head. You're thinking about everything. You're moving too slow. This is why you start in parking lots, right? So it's a practice at first. But then eventually it becomes a habit. And, and like good habits are virtues, bad habits we call vices. And a habit is just something that you can do kind of any time you decide to do it, which is usually often because a habit is, is typically a routine. There's like a time and a place where it happens. So you brush your teeth when you first get up. You know, you exercise at this time during the day. So with driving, for instance, it, the habits are not just going to drive, but they're all the little things that go into driving, like at what point you start your turn, when you brake, when you accelerate in a turn. These become habits. At first, you're terrible at it, but then you start to get it. And, it, and it's not, you're not in your head anymore. You're just kind of doing them anytime you decide. So every, everything you do in order to drive well becomes habitual. And you might have to think about it in some situations, but for most of the time, if, when you decide to, you, you can do it. And then after a while, it, it moves even one step further to what you would call a reflex. So this is when you can do it without thinking. It's just reflexive. Like you ever have that deal where you like, you leave work in your car and you wake up in your driveway and think, how did that happen? Like you don't remember anything along the way? Cause that's, driving is a reflex, right? It has become, it's automaticity is the psychological word. It's a, it's a reflex. And once something is at that reflexive level, it transfers from like one environment to another. So if you learn to drive a car, if you sit in a truck, you can still drive a truck. Or if you get in somebody else's car, you, you don't have to relearn how to drive, you still know how to do it. And, and this, is, this is how it goes. It starts out as a practice that we're terrible at it and then becomes this habit that we can kind of do when we decide to. And then it becomes this reflex that travels to different contexts. And if you, you think about this kind of track we're on here with regard to 
virtues, like take a virtue like patience. Let's say you want to become a more patient person. We'll first find a role model who's patient. Good luck finding one. Um, but you talk to them, ask them how they do it. But then you're going to eventually have to find a way to practice patience, to do, actually do it and do it poorly. So when I, when I find myself in a season where I'm, I'm impatient, I start, there are two or three little practices I do. I get in the longest line at the grocery store, which is super annoying. And I have to sit there and tell myself, okay, you're not trying to be efficient. You're not trying to hurry. You're trying to be patient. So just be patient. And I sit there and I think, be patient, right? Or I drive the speed limit, which I don't like to do. Corey's a sheriff's deputy sitting here. I'm just admitting nine or ten overs about my norm. Sorry, Corey. Um, or I often what I'll do is, is get in the longest line at the red light. You ever try that one? Anybody like sneak always into the shortest thing, and then you're thinking, how fast can I get over, back over, because I have to make a left turn? Yeah, every day. Every day for me. Patience is a, is a problem. So when you, when you start to feel impatient in the middle of these practices, you remind yourself, oh, I'm practicing patience. Let me try patience here, even if you stink at it. And at first you will. You'll be, you'll be terrible at it. You won't enjoy it either because it's hard to enjoy something you're really bad at. And because, like with patience, this is just an inefficient way to, to live, right? I can get a lot more done if I'm impatient with myself and others. But I'm not trying to live like that. I'm trying to take on a different kind of way of being that's closer to what I'm intended to be. So these practices will go to work on me, on who I am. And if you stick with the practice long enough, it'll become a habit. Like whenever you sort of need to have patience, you know how to do it. You reach for patience and it's there. That's a habit. And eventually it'll work its way down to a reflex, which means anytime you encounter something in the world that requires patience, you'll just do it. You'll be patient. And then this weird thing happens. You, you start to go into different situations. So like if you're patient at home, you figure out it travels. I'm a little more patient at work or when driving, or, or whatever. And eventually, it, it'll become a reflex, and that reflexive um, response will come up anytime you're in a situation that's like frustrating, or where you're forced to wait, you know, and it's not your fault, or you feel powerless, so there's some urgency, but you're stuck. Your response, your reflex, will be patience. And then the next thing you'll notice is that some places are just easier to practice patience. Than others. This is mostly because there's always, almost always, a community behind any virtue. This is how we, we learn them. There's a family, there's a church, uh, a work team, there's a, a, a coach or a, a sports team that embodies some virtue and trains their members in how to practice that, that virtue. But, so let's say you're nurtured in patience by a patient community to the point where it starts to become a reflex. And then you do something like go home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and you're like, this is not a patient place at all, right? And, or, or maybe, you know, you start a whole new job and they're like gunners and nobody's patient, really impatient. But you move to some other place that's not like that community and you realize you have a desire 
for patient communities. It's worked its way down to your desire. I would rather live that way, the patient way. And not only that, what you end up realizing is I kind of love patience. I just see how good it is for me. And, and I want to keep practicing. So that kind of closes the loop. I want your desire is then to keep practicing patience, to get better at it. And, and eventually what happens is, I think this is Paul's claim, you sort of become patient. You become a patient person. It begins to define who you are. And it, it's funny because it all started with a practice that you were terrible at. But if you kind of wire it to your schedule and continue, and if you're embedded in a community that supports you, patience will become eventually part of your identity. And there's, there's obviously more to it than this. But this is one of the oldest ways to think about human transformation. We, we have to be embedded in a community who's aiming toward a different goal, to have a different kind of character, and who is trying to work practices that can shape us in that direction. By the way, all human communities do this, whether it's explicit or not. All communities train their members in how to act, how to take on the character of the group. And our, our lives are filled with practices. Most of it is unthinking. Most of it is doing stuff to us that we, we have not closed the loop. We have not figured out where it's taking us, what kind of person it's shaping us to be. And Paul says, we're supposed to put away some things that are pretty selfish and violent. And we're supposed to grab hold of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, and thankfulness. And the promise is that this, this Christian habitus will impact us, making us more alive, more fully human, but will extend out to whole communities that in, end up being able to change the world. It's interesting if you read early church history, these little Christian communities cropped up all over the place. And people's response to these communities, you can see it in writings of the time, the response was, vide, vide, vide. That's what they say. Look or see, see, see. See how they love one another. See how patient. See how kind. They did not say, ade, like listen to the Christian message. They did not say, um, lege, read what they write. They said, vide, Look, look at them. They act differently. It seems to be making them more alive. And I think this is how it's supposed to go. So this is what we're doing. For the next four weeks, we're going to look at a few of these central Christian practices. There are these kind of 10 that we gravitate toward that have become a big part of Redemption Church's life. And um, our goal is to think about how we might, in really small ways, start to jump in with these practices. Now, hear me. Our goal is not to 
give you a list of 10 new things you have to do, and if you don't, you feel guilty. You know what I mean? Like, we've all been through that little merry-go-round before. I really, truly, I don't want to do that. Um, but we're talking about how do we change and grow? How do we become more alive in such a way that our community and all of us, as we disperse throughout the week, we are this human and humane and humanizing presence in, in the world. And we can do this just by thinking about little, little teeny practices. So we're not going to load you up with a massive to-do list or make you feel overwhelmed or guilty. But I do, I really do want to give you confidence that you're not like a slave to your desires, man. You can shape them. It's not actually that hard. And it'll be interesting to see as we kind of dig through these. We may not get to all of them in detail, but we'll get to as many as we can. Which ones stick out to you and which ones you're like, okay, I need, I need to start a practice to get there. And if you do this, this will, uh, it can transform your life and your character. And it can really make you part of how God is trying to mend the world. All right, are you, are you game? Are we up for this? All right. So we're going to do this for the next four weeks before we jump into saints. So if you would pray with me. Oh God, we, um, we think about Paul's teaching and this idea that we can change, that we can actually put on the virtues, the Christian habitus. And of course, we all probably have just at least a little bit of skepticism here. But I pray that you would watch over us and be with us as we think these things through. And that you would speak to us about our own lives and where we need to go to work a little bit to point them toward your vision for the world and to use our bodies the way they were intended. And I pray that it would just all be bathed in love and grace as we try to chase things that we can change. Amen. If you would stand, please, and we're going to receive communion now. The reason we do this is that in Christ's last night with his people, he had them do kind of this sort of thing. He had them all take the same pieces of bread and the same cup and share in it. And he said, I'm leaving, but from now on when you meet, eat some bread and drink some wine, drink a cup, and, and it's going to be a symbol of my body, the bread, and my life, the, the blood. And he said, I want you to take it into your bodies and, and remember that you are um, what you eat. You know, you, you're, I want you to be made of the stuff I'm made out of, which is kind of what Paul's talking about. And he said, whenever you gather, do this. And so that's why we receive communion every week when we gather. It's also why we don't, like, set any limits. You have to be a member or something. Or anybody who calls on the name of Christ is welcome to join in this. And um, before we do, though, let's all pray a blessing on the table. Oh, God, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness.
all to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?